0: We're going to be talking about, uh, as you'll notice the title slide here, recreation this morning. There's some very interesting things in John chapter 20 that tie back to the book of Genesis in the original creation. Uh, the reason why I use it, you're thinking, well, why do you have a painting that's in a Catholic deal up on the screen? We're Protestants here. No, well, that's fine. I happen to like Michelangelo's work. <laughs> and, and this is Michelangelo's uh, work that's on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel uh, there at the Vatican in Rome. Uh, I've been there and looked at it. Marvelous, marvelous works of art. Something that's interesting on this, here's a little bit of art uh, appreciation for you before we get into the text this morning. If you'll notice that God's hand is on the right and Adam's hand is on the left. This is the account of creation that's that's depicted there. And, and I'm not going to get down out into the weeds on what part's accurate, what's not and all that. But I think it's really interesting. This is God creating Adam is what's depicted. That's the creation. And it's there as a reminder. Something that I think is really interesting and it came to me years ago uh, in looking at this is... What Michelangelo was not just a painter; he was also a sculptor. Uh, you look at it, and I've been to uh, to Florence and looked at the the, the statue of David, that uh, beautiful, and and many other works that he did as a sculptor. One of the things that happens when people sculpt and they create something from nothing as they sculpt, is they use their thumbs to shape the work that they're doing. And a sculptor over years would get, look at God's thumb, a splayed thumb. Look how big it is. It's just a subtlety in that painting of God, the sculptor, the author of life, as he is authoring man's life in the creation. I just think it's a cool thing to to see Um, most of the time, you don't see Adam's thumb looking like that. That's God's thumb. He's the creator. He's the one that's doing the work. Um, And so I just selected that for this morning, looking at creation and then looking at some aspects of recreation that we see here in the Gospel of John. Fascinating stuff that we're going to look at this morning. So just by way of quick recap, the chapter opened with Mary Magdalene, or Miriam from the town of Magdala, Going to the tomb, most likely with other women, uh, John uses, he just kind of spotlights her because she's the one that does, she's, and, and she's prominent among women in the New Testament. I mentioned that last week. Don't need to go there again. But so here she is with some other women. She goes to the tomb and she sees that the stone is rolled away, that it's removed. So before she goes any further, she to use modern vernacular, or at least that I know, she freaks out and she runs back and gets the guy. She's like, there's something really strange going on. She's assuming that somebody stole the body of Jesus and that they had hidden it away. And so then Peter and John come running back. We looked in the narrative there where, uh, John is very clear that he outran Peter and, uh, humble enough to call himself the other disciple, but still competitive enough to say, I won. And uh, I just find that fascinating every time I read that. And, and so they get to the tomb. John gets there first. He he stoops to look inside and he sees the grave clothes. And, and, and then Peter comes after him. Uh, and when John sees it, remember we looked, looked at the word saw there. Three different Greek words. It's all rendered in English as saw or see. And, and when John looks in, he sees the grave clothes. And, and they're looking kind of weird because they're empty. Uh, but he doesn't have any opinion about it, and that word is blepo. It means to just, to look. Peter comes, runs past John, goes straight into the tomb, and he looks upon the grave clothes, and he sees that the headpiece, which was separate from the rest of the wrappings, that it's all in order. It's a headpiece is a separate spot because it would be separate. He sees that these are undisturbed, but they're empty. And, and, The word that is used for when Peter saw that is theorio. And what that means is that it's more than a glance. He's making an observation. And the wheels are turning. So then John stoops into the tomb and he looks and says that John saw and he believed. And that word again, it's a different Greek word. And the reason why I'm doing this is because it really colors the passage. And I wanted to recap this. And that word is ido. And that doesn't mean just a casual glance. It doesn't mean an observation. It means he understood. In the same way that if somebody explains something to me, I might say, oh, I see. Hmm, okay. So there's a progression in what's going on in these guys' level of understanding. Now, I understand that we've talked about in the world, seeing is believing. In the kingdom, believing is seeing. It's a totally different dynamic at work. And that John saw and understood, he understood that Jesus had risen from the dead, but he had no point of reference, and he talks about that when he says the scriptures hadn't been opened to us yet, he had no point of reference as to what it meant. He had no understanding yet of what had taken place. He had no understanding of the scriptures, he had no understanding really of the power of the resurrection that had been brought about. That's coming, and we're going to look at that more this morning so then Mary shows up. The guys leave. They don't see the angels. Mary sees two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, on, in the stone cap pat, or deal there in, in the tomb. And, and, and she sees and she has dialogue with them. And, and she's talking to them just as though you'd talk to somebody standing next to you. And then she turns around and there's this guy there and she thinks it's the gardener. And she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. And then he looks at her and he says, Mary. And we talked about last week, you know, how the way that he said her name and, and looking now into his eyes, she would know who that was. That was imprinted in her mind. And she just, she cries out Rabboni, which is an intimate term, teacher, but not just teacher, but my teacher. It was a, a an intimate way to address him respectfully, but intimately, because she had a great love for Jesus, as did he for her. And so he then, as she grabs him, because she's, she thought that she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, you know, where, if you've taken his body, let me know where it is. All carted away, which is kind of silly to think. I mean, but she's not thinking in logical terms. She just knows that he's gone. And so what happens then is is she just kind of lunges onto him. as I picture her just grabbing a hold of him like, I lost you once. I'm not letting you go. And he's saying, don't wait, don't cling to me. And no, it doesn't mean there's not some deep theological significance to this. I mean, some people try to really overstretch on interpretation here. It doesn't mean that she couldn't touch him because he had not yet ascended. And, and, you know, it's just uh, no, no. He's just saying, look, this is a new day. There is a new dynamic at work here don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father and your father. Go and tell my brothers. He he uses the term brothers for the first time. Talked about that, a covenant term. Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. And so that's where we pick up uh, the narrative. And in verse 18, uh, that's where we left off last week, It says that Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So chapter 20 is broken down into three different segments as far as time goes. There's the morning and she got to the tomb before sunrise in the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 a.m. She got to the tomb at that point and then there's the interaction going back and forth to where the disciples were and then coming back and then having this interaction with Jesus. And then she goes and she tells the men. Now, it's assumed that the guys are all assembling together here. Now, she goes and she talks to, to Peter and John, whoever else is assembled. And I believe that the men continue to assemble throughout the day because when she does this, that's the end of the morning narrative of the morning of the resurrection. It picks back up after this in verse 19, in the evening of the same day, the first day of the week. Sunday, And and it's thought that where the church began to look at Sunday as the Lord's Day, shifting from Saturday as the Sabbath to Sunday as the Lord's Day. And it's not technically a Sabbath day. We're not called to a Sabbath day. We're called to a Sabbath life. Hebrews chapter four, not going to go there. Oh, I could rabbit trail on that big time. Will not. I'm disciplined. No, I'm not. All right. Maybe a little. No, I'm not. All right. At any rate, so. Uh anyways largely thought that that's where Sunday comes from because it's the day that he rose and it's the day he had these significant interactions with his men. Now, when Mary goes to tell the guys what's going on, it, it we're told in Mark 16:11 that they did not believe her. They essentially said, "Okay, right Mary, uh you, maybe you didn't get enough sleep or whatever's going on." But it says, "No, they rejected her testimony, look, I've seen the Lord, and this is what he wanted me to tell you. And they went, no, no, we're, we're not seeing that. So before we go further and get into actually the, the narrative in John, I want to back up, or in John 20, to John chapter 14. And we're going to go back. Now, this is Sunday morning and then Sunday evening that we're looking at this morning. We're going to go back to Thursday night. We're actually Friday morning because after sunset, it was Friday in the Jewish way of looking at days. We're going to go back to the day, three three days back, and look at some interaction that Jesus had with his guys. Now, in John 13 and 14, it is literally the upper room discourse. All right? There are a number, there's five chapters in there that we kind of put a, a, a general heading over as the, the upper room discourse. But in John chapter 13, he shows up in the upper room. At the end of John chapter 14, he says, Come, let us go from here. Remember when we talked about that? I personally think they went up on the roof. They went somewhere out in the city. They ended up at the garden. All right. So here in John chapter 14, Jesus is giving closing instructions to his men. All right. And this is going to come to bear on this day. And we're going to see some things that are very interesting. So in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 28. This is Jesus speaking. He says, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He says that he will. He's not at this point, but he will. And then in verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And then he says this, he says, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Very interesting, because now Jesus prophesying then and giving the men instruction then comes to bear now. They have been through the ringer the last few days, because as that night turned into morning, they arrested him in the garden. They took him off through the trials and then crucified him these guys have spent all weekend not in a good place. I can only imagine. I mean, they don't know what's going on. They know that this Jesus that they had been with for three and a half years was dead. And they they saw him, at least some of them did, hanging on the cross, lifeless, when his body was taken down. And, and, and it was very, very obviously dead. Now, they've gotten word from the, the ladies that, that he's resurrected, that he's risen from the dead. But again, they don't have a point of reference. We have a lot of points of reference because we read the Bible. These guys are living it. And as I'd like to do, guys, I'd like to encourage you just to try to empty your mind of the knowledge you have and come along with these guys on this journey as though it were unfolding before you as it goes. I love to read the Bible like this because there's lots of surprises in it when we do. That's why I go back to John 14. So now back to John chapter 20, verse 19. The same then, the same day at evening. So now this is the evening interaction that's taking place. Being the first day of the week when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus said, my peace I give you. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Or let it be afraid. What's happening here? These guys have troubled hearts. And they're afraid. And Jesus knew that. He could look and to see the condition ahead of time that they were going to be in. He's giving them this assurance before he goes to the cross. And now he shows up in the upper room and he literally steps into the midst of these guys behind locked doors. Why are the doors locked? They're afraid. They're afraid of the Jews because the Jews had... I mean, they were hostile towards the, the disciples. They were hostile towards anybody that identified with this Jesus of Nazareth. And they're afraid of the government, of the Romans, because remember what had happened was uh, on Saturday, the the Jewish leaders had gone and asked Pilate for a Roman guard for the tomb, 16 men. And then they asked for a Roman seal to be put on the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. With the death penalty for anyone that would violate that. Or the death penalty for the soldiers if they let the body get away. So that happened on Saturday. Now on Sunday we know that when the tomb was rolled away and the soldiers were as dead men, is what it tells us in the narrative, that they went off not to the Romans. They didn't go to Pilate. They went to the religious leaders and they said, he's gone. The body's gone. And so it says that they gave them a large sum of money. They paid them off. And they said, now, if anybody asks you, tell them that the disciples stole the body. And if it comes to the governor, if it comes to Pilate, we've got you covered. We will make sure that you don't get penalized for this. And so... The whole word through I mean the city was a buzz this is this is feast time there's a huge population in the city, and the the word would have spread like wildfire that this jesus i mean it was already a buzz because they'd crucified him, and there were a number of people that knew that Jesus was messiah, and so there was a buzz there and then there's a new buzz that they've gone to the grave and the grave is empty, and now there's a new buzz on top of that oh, the disciples stole the body because they want Him to be seen as a martyr. And so now the government is a threat to the disciples, as is the religious establishment, and they're holed up. And Jesus comes to them and He stands in the midst of them and He says, peace to you. Uh, it's just significant to me that that that's how this unfolds. It, it says that... Um, Let's see. Here's something that I want to read from G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite commentators. It says, Now he stood in the midst of them beyond the tragedy, beyond beyond the agony, beyond the darkness, beyond that which had filled their hearts with terror. And he used the salutation with which they were familiar. And he said to them, My peace I give unto you. And now for the reason that the dread was over, he was beyond the thing that they had so dreaded for love of him. And he said, peace be unto you. Verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, the word Ido, when they saw and understood the Lord. They understood this is truly Jesus. Somehow, some way, alive from the dead. Luke tells us in chapter 24 uh, of the Gospel of Luke that they thought he was a spirit when he showed up in the room. And he said, uh, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And in verse 40 in, in that chapter in Luke, it says they still didn't believe. They just they no, 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 we're good. Interesting that Jesus says flesh and bones. A spirit uh, doesn't have flesh and bones. He doesn't say a spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. Why? Because his blood was gone. It had been poured out. Uh, and they still didn't believe. Verse 29. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have believed. In verse 29, Jesus gets to that as he's dealing with Thomas. But what he's working here, guys, is he wants to increase these guys' faith to where they are willing to believe and not use physical sight, because there's a whole different dynamic going on here. As I mentioned, seeing is believing. It's not believing is seeing. Um, no, it, it's, it's, I'm sorry, it's not believing is seeing. It's seeing is believing. It's as we believe that the Lord opens our hearts to understand. And we'll see that further. We'll see absolute proof of that as we go on. But what Jesus is talking about is that he has a resurrected body. Now, I want to stop here and look at that for a minute because we too will have, at one point, when we shed this physical body, we will get a resurrected body. And guess what? It'll be like his. We will have abilities that we do not have now. We, again, we're bound to this time and space continuum. I mean, scientifically and and Physically, that's we're children of time. And yet, we will not be bound in that time. I love what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. He'd say, I can't wait to take the universal tour. And because this body will be fashioned for heaven. This body will not be bound by physical space. He demonstrates that when he just shows up in the room. The door's locked. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the greatest chapter, if you want to read about the resurrection and what that means to us, it's the best chapter in all of the New Testament that discusses in depth the resurrection. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 45, he says, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, i.e. Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Now, when he did that, it, pneuma, it doesn't mean that he shed his body. It means that there is a spiritual dynamic taking place. Uh, the word there is pneuma. Uh, and when we took talk about the word of God being inspired in 2 Timothy 3.16, the word pneuma is there. It's theonoustos in that point. But what it's talking about is where we get the word pneumatic for air, not something that is tangible. Yes, Jesus has a body. He has a resurrected body, but there's a spiritual dynamic to it. And that's what Paul goes on to say here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward the spiritual. Uh, verse 47 in 1 Corinthians 15, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are made of dust, you and I. As also is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we have been born physically, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. What a great assurance that we will inherit a heavenly body. We will inherit a resurrected body that is fitted for eternity. This body, again, bound by time, this body is fitted. It's a finite body. It has a beginning and it has an end. That one doesn't. That one goes on for eternity. As we spend eternity in the presence of Christ. For those who believe, for those who have come to know the Lord, that's the body that we get. Philippians, so as we look at what, so what is our hope? When we talk about hope as Christians, what is it? It's the hope for the resurrection. It's the hope that when I die, when I, this, when I lay this life down, or when my life is taken from me, that there's something more. And Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 3, says this. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. The body these guys are seeing in the upper room as they're looking upon Christ, putting their hands into his side, checking out the wounds on his hands. And he's saying, look, it's me. It's a physical body, but it's different. According to the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. And so this is an assurance. It's a guarantee for us as believers. And we should take great hope in the fact that our body will be resurrected, but it won't. It will be recognizable, and, and I'm not going to get off into First Corinthians 15 more, uh, because Paul says it'll be recognizable. will be distinct and different in, in the same way. You look up in the sky, you see the sun and the moon and the stars. They're all heavenly bodies, but they're different. And the point that he makes is that that's how we'll be in the resurrection. We'll have a heavenly body, but we will be distinct. We'll be different from one another and recognizable. I believe. So verse 21 of uh, John chapter 20, it says, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Again, two different Greek words uh, in play here. He says, as the Father has sent me, the Greek word is apostello. That's where we get the word apostle. Uh, As the Father has sent me, that means to be sent with and having authority. He says, I also send you in the Greek word there is pempo uh, to be sent under and having authority. It's a different word. So what he's saying is, is the father has sent me under his authority. He says, I don't do anything unless the father shows me to do that. And as the father sent me under authority, but with authority. so So also I send you under my authority and with authority. He's giving these guys authority now. What's remarkable to me is this is the very first thing that he does. Um, as, As he's telling these guys, the first thing he does is commission them. He's on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. He shows up in the upper room and he says, look, I'm sending you out. And I don't believe that this was just for them, the capital A apostles. I believe this is for the church because this is the inception. This is the birth. Of the church, yes. It would be fully birthed on Pentecost. But there are things going on here. The very first things that he does coming out of the grave in the resurrection, the very first things that he does are extremely important. In theological terms, in in, in um, hermeneutics, the, the science of studying the Bible is called the principle of first mention. And there are a number of first mentions here that we do well to heed. The first thing he does is say, look, I didn't just resurrection resurrect so that you can have a happy life. Sorry, folks, that's not the gospel. Yes, he wants us to have joy, which is far deeper than happiness. He talked a lot about joy when he was in the upper room. Um, something that I, I deal with when I deal with people who are experiencing difficulties in their marriage is to remind them marriage is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. It's a proving ground. Oh boy, I saw a lot of people look at their spouse. It's, it's not to make us happy. It's to make us holy. It's, it's a proving ground for our faith. And there's no greater thing by which iron will sharpen iron than a marriage. And, and what he's doing here is he's going to these guys and he's not saying, I love you and I have a beautiful plan for your life. Because his beautiful plan for their life, he does have a wonderful plan for our lives. Uh, we were watching a video the other night, and I was reminded that wonderful plan for Peter's life would be to crucify, be crucified upside down. That wonderful plan for John's life would be to be banished to an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And, and yes, of course, he was given the revelation, the apocalypse at that time. The, the plan that he had for the apostles, Paul's life, would be to be executed in Rome and to have his head chopped off. And for every one of these apostles, these guys that were his inner circle, these guys that he used to launch the church, for every one. He loved them, and he had a wonderful plan for their life, but all except for John would be executed for their testimony of Christ. So, we as the church really need to adjust our thinking and and to realize that this is serious business, number one. This isn't you know, he doesn't appear in the upper room and haul out a final graph from Sunday school. All right. Not that those are bad, uh, but there's a lot of things that go on in the Bible. I've mentioned before that you're not going to read on a Christmas card yeah, because there are serious things that are being taking place here. And the first thing he does is he puts the weight of spreading the gospel on his men. But he doesn't do it in an empty fashion as though now somehow we're supposed to conjure up the ability to take that and carry it out. In Hebrews chapter 3, we read, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, the apostolos, and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, that's what he's saying here when he talks to the man. I come in the Father's authority. I'm faithful to Him who appointed me, as Moses also was faithful in all of His house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as He who built the house has more glory than the house. And so, what he's saying is Jesus is over Moses, and Moses was faithful in His house. How much more faithful would Jesus be over His house, because He's the builder of the house, and. Something that's interesting here is that what Jesus is hes establishing these guys' authority, he's giving them authority to go out and to do this. I'm reminded of a centurion uh, whose servant was sick in, in Matthew chapter 8. And, and what the centurion said was, look, I'm a man under authority. I, I have people that give me orders. I'm also a man who has many soldiers under me and I say something and it gets done. And it says that Jesus marveled at that man's faith. He understood and he just said, Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be well. I totally understand this authority thing. That's the same thing that's in play here. Jesus is saying, come in the father's authority. And he said in John chapter 17, as he prayed that he was going to send them in the way that you sent me. So I'm going to send them. And now it's being carried out. It's being. It's taking place. What does that mean to us? Each of us is sent. Each of us is sent. It is a primary aspect of being a Christian. Is that there is a commission on our lives. Uh, again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus issues forth with a great commission. It's twice. It's mentioned twice. At the end of Matthew, and also in the beginning of the book of Acts. And this is the great commission. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most fabulous verses in all of God's word. What does he do first thing out of the grave? As he's resurrected, he commissions his men, he sends them, he tells them, you're going to be sent. But then what he does is he gives them power to carry it out. It says that, that he breathed on them. So what does it mean? He said, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of debate, a lot of conjecture, depending on if you're in more charismatic or less charismatic circles and all of that. What it means is, receive the Holy Spirit. Period. Receive the Holy Spirit. I am not going to sit here and spiritualize this thing. What God's Word puts forth is what God's Word intends. And he breathes on these guys, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. What it is literally, it means receive at once. The tense on the word receive is immediate. Immediately receive, right now, the Holy Spirit. So you say, well, what about Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit is poured out. Remember, we looked at, um, in, in the Gospel of John, he said, right now the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. This is the in. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's taking place in these men's lives. They are receiving the new birth. This is it. This is being born again. Born from above is literally how that renders out. And so this is what's happening. This is the giving of life. This is called being washed in the water of regeneration, which is what Titus talks about in that small epistle towards the end of the New Testament. This is a big deal. This is what Jesus had promised. When he promised the Holy Spirit, he's delivering. So at Pentecost, what takes place? The the coming upon. And I I believe it again, I don't want to get too bogged down and become dogmatic. And yet I believe that there are three different experiences of the Holy Spirit that are depicted in God's word. There is the with and that's that nag. And I'm not calling the Holy Spirit a nag, but there's that. Unsettledness in my soul. Who am I and what am I, what was I, what is life about? I know that I need God. Somehow I know that my life is empty. Somehow I know that there's more and I need to know God. I so clearly remember that, just that, that imbalance in my soul as I sought the Lord. And I sought him for ten years and got all caught up in all goofy kinds of things. And yet when I came to the Lord, or when he came to me, when his spirit was poured out on my life, I knew there was a difference. So at Pente- Pentecost, there's the with, here's the end. And this is, again, this is the new birth. I am absolutely convinced. And if you believe otherwise, that's fine. I've got room for that. But I believe that this is the new birth. The coming upon is for service. The coming upon is when the Holy Spirit comes upon those men on the day of Pentecost. It's not only a ratification of the new covenant in his blood that we looked at earlier when we were taking communion, but it's also a point where the Holy Spirit comes upon these men. says that these people were assembled from all over the world. They began speaking in all these different languages, tongues, if you will. And then they would go back to different parts of the empire, and they would have the ability to share the gospel. That's where the Holy Spirit comes upon for service, for these men to now go out and to be empowered to carry out this message. Now, The word that's used here for him breathing on them is the word emphousio. Okay, it's a Greek word, and it means to to breathe upon them. He breathed upon them, emphousioed upon them the Holy Spirit. Now, it's only used once in the New Testament, and it's used here in John chapter 20. Nowhere else in the New Testament. However, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament the first mention, again, principle of first mention, is in Genesis 2-7. It says, "In the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Enfusio. And man became a living being. So here we have, that's at the creation of man, and here we have the recreation because we have God breathing life into his people. Because sin had now been dealt with. You know that at the, when man fell, there in the garden, that man was separated from God, and now, and man inherits Adam's nature, not his sins, but his nature, which is a nature that's predisposed to sin. Having gone to the cross and died for our sins, and now having resurrected from the dead, which is God saying, I'm putting my stamp of approval on that sacrifice, on that substitutionary sacrifice, now, The ability comes for God to breathe life once more, but now spiritual life into the hearts of his people. This is definitely the new birth. As I look in the Greek, I look in the original language, I look at what's happening around. These guys were being empowered. Why would they be empowered before Pentecost? Glad you asked. In Luke chapter 24... I'm going to read a couple of verses there. Uh, This is the same scene, the same time, the same period in the upper room with his men. The first time he appears to them, uh, says that Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45 says he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Wow. Why would that be the case? It says, and then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Now he's giving understanding of that which um, John says when the resurrection first took place, we didn't understand the scriptures. Well, he comes that evening and he gives that he opens their heart to understand the scriptures that they would understand why he had to die and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And so what Jesus needed to do, because he was going to begin now in Acts chapter uh, 1, it says he spoke to them for 40 days of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. For the next 40 days, he would be illuminating their understanding. He would be teaching them consistently and constantly. And they needed to have the Holy Spirit because why? What does the What does the Bible tell us? What does the Gospel of John tell us about the ministry of the Spirit? He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will guide you into all truth and he'll glorify me. Those three things need to be in place in order to be able to effectively share the gospel. They need to be in place in order for me to be able to understand the plan of God. They need to be in place in order for me to authoritatively relate that plan to others. And so he's doing this with his men. He's giving them sort of a head start on understanding, opening their mind to the scriptures. He did that with the men on the road to Emmaus. Remember? He opened their minds. I love the way that ends. And and didn't our hearts just burn within us as we, as he expounded the scriptures to us? So with that in mind, Jesus now goes on to give these guys further authority. Verse 23. Another first mention. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, there's some goofy teaching out there about this too. Saying that we somehow have the power to retain or remit sins. Nonsense. The reason why he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, is so that you can be connected to the source. And what he's saying here is that we don't provide forgiveness, but we proclaim it. And the proclamation of his forgiveness is given to us by authority. I want to read this in, in I have this, it's a translation of the New Testament in Greek. And and it's a strong translation. It's an, an expanded translation by a guy by the name of Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar. I've loved reading his works over the years. In verses 22 and 23, it says this, receive at once the Holy Spirit. If the sins of any certain individuals you forgive, they have been previously forgiven them with the present result that they are in a state of forgiveness. If the sins of any certain individuals you retain in not forgiving them, they have been previously retained and thus have not been forgiven with the present result that they are retained and in a state of not being forgiven. The church isn't charged with making arbitrary decisions about people. However, If I go and I share the gospel, because, you know, there's a point where you have shared enough and it's time for a decision. If I go and I share the gospel with someone, I share, look, Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead as proof that his sacrifice was effective. And that you, by faith, need to appropriate that truth in your life, because if you don't, hell is real. And if you don't turn from your sins, if you don't ask him to cleanse you from your sins, you will die in your sins. And I have absolute authority to relate that to someone. I also have the authority if somebody says, look, man, I totally get this. I understand, man, I am bound in the need of Christ. I want him in my life. I understand he died to restore me, to to bring life to me. I understand that, that... He is the one, the author of my life, and I want to live for him. And I can tell that person with confidence, if that is truly where you're at, your sins are forgiven. You have been cleansed. And we have, it's not just these guys he's given that authority to again. It's us. And we have the ability, we have the commission. There's three things that have to be in place in being sent the first is we have to be commissioned in order to be sent that and this is what he's doing he's giving us a great commission it's also in acts chapter one go therefore and proclaim this gospel of the kingdom begin in jerusalem then go to judea and then go to samaria by the way the bad neighborhood and then the uttermost parts of the earth and, and and truly, that's what our commission is. The Great Commission starts here with these men in the upper room. But it's not just for them. It's for us. These words are timeless. And they're authoritative. And he has given us authority. It's authority that, that we need to use. So the first thing is you need to be sent. The second is you have to have a message. What's the message? The gospel. Plain and simple. The gospel. Know the gospel. Understand how to share it. The third is you need authority. And he's giving you and I authority in his word, through his word, right here, right now. The authority is in letting people know that having believed in the finished work of Christ, that their sins are forgiven. And if not, then not. Serious business. Life and death. Why would it be so unique that these would be the first things that he breathes, that he talks to his men about coming out of the tomb? Because this is the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of the life he wants to give to us. This is the heart of what he wants from us in this life. To be sold out, wall to wall, for Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. Everything else. That's what he wants from us. That's the Great Commission. Trust as you share the gospel that the Holy Spirit does the work on both sides of the conversation. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to tell you what a wonderful person you are because you came and you shared that this, this gospel of the kingdom. But that's not because of you. Jesus says in Gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when men revile you and cast insults at you and count it, say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. It's because they're rejecting him. They're not rejecting you. Yeah, it comes at you, but it's not you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is there on that side of the conversation convicting them. And people will either respond to that conviction that's coming as you are faithful to share the gospel or not. And if they don't, it's because, as we're told in the beginning of this gospel, in in John chapter 1, that men love darkness more than they love light. And it's not your problem. You've given them an opportunity to respond, to believe the gospel and to respond in faith. What they do with that, again, the Holy Spirit is faithful. He is giving you the prompting. He's, you, if you ever walked away from a situation thinking, man, I really should have shared Jesus with them. I have, and I believe I've quenched the Spirit at times like that, and I don't want to do that. But understand and trust that as you share the gospel, it's not always going to go well. It didn't go well for these guys at all. I mean, look at how their lives ended up. And it doesn't go well for people in other parts of the world that are putting their lives literally on the line. That's why part of what this church supports is far-reaching ministries out there in parts of the world where people are killed for their faith. Even now. I mean, they have a, they have a black ops section. We can support them, but we have to support them kind of blindly. We know that the money's going there, but if they can't tell us what they're doing. It's too dangerous. This is real stuff. When we live in a culture and a society that's gotten soft, and I'm not—I don't have anybody in particular in mind—but I mean, our our culture has become soft as to the the real importance. What are we here for? We're here to share the gospel of Christ. Everything else is secondary. So it's a challenge for us. And I know that this is this is a challenging mes- message, folks. I'll tell you what. Uh, Something I've shared before, there was blood all over my office as I was preparing this because I was really under conviction that, Lord, I need to stay focused. I need to stay focused on what you called me to do. And so the challenge is this. If not us, who? If not now, when? Straight up. And I believe it's an exhortation not just for you, but it's for me. Because the church is in trouble. And yeah, he has it. He's got it. It's it's in his hands. That doesn't diminish the fact that Jesus coming out of the grave came and breathed on these men to receive new life. And then he tells them what to do with it. Verse 24, now Thomas, called the twin, was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. There's a lot of speculation about Thomas's twin, the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, Jesus in the Gospels names brothers. Um, you know, he says that James and John are brothers, Peter and Andrew are brothers, but he doesn't say anything about Thomas, and so we're not going to go there. Um, again, people, oh well, maybe it was this person or that person. Eh, you know, it doesn't say. Verse 25, And the other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. And so he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the prints of his nails, and I put my finger into the print of his nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. It seems that Thomas was gone. Of course, he was gone when Jesus first appeared to the guys, but he returned the same day. It doesn't say that it was later. Uh, we're not sure, but it makes sense. But I also want to point out a couple things about Thomas. I think he gets a bum rap here. He doesn't say, I cannot believe. He says, I will not believe. I don't believe that he's doubting. I believe he's unwilling. I believe he saw the Lord Jesus dead. And he says, look, guys, I am having lots of trouble wrapping my mind around this. I don't get this. I'm not sure I you know I I'm I'm not willing to believe this unless I see for myself. He gets a bum rap. If you look back, I mean the the Bible paints a pretty good sketch of him as and more so than most of the other disciples. Uh in John chapter 11 at Lazarus's death, remember, it says that they came to Jesus, he was in the northern part of the country, and they came and said, "Hey, Lazarus is sick and it says that Jesus waited 4 days. And then when Jesus was ready to go back, the guy started arguing with him, saying, "Man, the Jews are trying to kill you. They're just now trying to kill. You. What? What are you gonna? What do you mean you're gonna go back? It's dangerous in the south. They don't like you." I'm paraphrasing, but that was the interaction they had. Thomas was the one that stood forward and he said, "Look, if we have to go back and die with him, then that's what we're gonna do. Let's just go back and die with him." And so Thomas was courageous in that. He wasn't doubting Jesus. He, I believe he had a deep love for the Lord. Uh, And then uh, in John chapter 14, when Jesus, remember, he says, in my father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come and I'll receive you unto myself. And and he's telling the guys this, and they're scratching their heads. And Thomas is, is the one who says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Again, courageous. Nobody else is talking. They're all going, oh, okay, great, whatever. I don't get this. And he's the one that expresses for the crew the lack of understanding that they had. And so, again, Thomas gets singled out here as the one that said that. But remember, uh, in verse 20, he showed the others his wounds. Luke says that they still didn't believe and he had to actually say, do you have anything to eat? And they brought out some fish and a honeycomb. Remember that? And, 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 when Jesus, I always picture it now, when Jesus walked out of the room through the wall, was there like honey smeared on the wall with some fish? I mean, no, it went with him. But the point is, is that Jesus resurrected physically and Thomas wanted to know. He wanted to know in his heart. Doubting Thomas, I think, is a, I think it's, it diminishes him when he doesn't need to be diminished because the other guys were in the same place. They didn't believe. They didn't believe after he even showed them his side and his hands. It took them a while to come around. Now think about if it was you, and and somebody that you saw was dead. You saw their body. You knew that that was it. They were finished. And they show up. You would be rubbing your eyes. You would be freaking out. Yeah, I would be. I would. I mean, it would be. This just doesn't happen. And so. Understand, these guys are going through this. And I can't, it can't even diminish them that they're filled with unbelief at this point. And Jesus, again, He wants to develop them to where they're, they're willing to believe without seeing. And that's the point that we'll get to next week. We're not going to make it there this week. So, the point is, this is a physical resurrection. And Thomas, yes, He says, I'm not going to, I am not going to put my weight down on that until I see for myself. And that's not an unreasonable thing. He needed to come to believe. And we'll talk about when Jesus tells him, look, I'm glad that you believed and blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that includes everybody in this room and many rooms before this, because there's enough evidence to the resurrection for us to put a reasonable faith in the fact that it truly happened. The point is that Jesus didn't resurrect as a spook. He wasn't a ghost. He proclaims himself, look, I have a body. If You don't believe me? Give me some fish. Give me a honeycomb. I'll eat. Only people with bodies can do that. He says, I'm not just a spirit. The bodily resurrection is a central doctrine in historic Orthodox Christianity. That's a big one. That's one that I will argue with people about. There are a lot of things I won't argue with people about. I mean, you know, if you want to believe that it's sprinkling or dunking, that's fine. Whatever you want to believe. And if you want to believe, you know, a lot of minor doctrinal issues that we could divide over, you know, predestiny and free will. And I mean, yeah, I think the Bible has presents things about those, but I'm not going to divide with somebody that takes a hard stance on those things. I will divide with somebody that takes a hard stance on things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus, because if he didn't bodily resurrect, our faith is worthless. It's worthless. Not my opinion. It's what Paul says. And if and you run it out to a logical end, there's nothing there for us if he didn't. So understanding that we're going to stop there. Uh, Finish up chapter 20 and then maybe get into chapter 21 next week. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thank you for these, these looks at, at Jesus coming from the grave and getting right down to business.